The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, welcome back. We are in Romans chapter 8 today. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and following. So, if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes these words. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, when we got to this eighth chapter of Romans, we made the point that this is a chapter that is really all about assurance. The situation has been pretty bleak up to this point. Paul has been describing the human condition, a lost condition, well, because we were people who had, of course, turned from God. We had followed our own desires, our own devices, and the result is that we were under the judgment of God. We had suppressed the truth. But Paul says the wonderful message of the gospel is that an alien righteousness has come, a righteousness that is not our own and a righteousness that comes from God and is given to us by grace, and it is received by faith. Grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, received through the conduit of faith. And the eighth chapter of Romans is all about being assured, having confidence in this alien righteousness, having confidence that we have indeed passed from judgment to acceptance by God the Father. So that's what this eighth chapter is all about. And as Paul is talking about assurance in this eighth chapter, here in verse 14, he introduces an idea that is new in the epistle to the Romans. Now, Paul's going to talk about this in other places. It's a theme that you and I as Christians are somewhat familiar with, but nevertheless, this is the first time that Paul introduces it here in Romans, and that is this notion of the family of God. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That can also be translated sons or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer in order that we may also be glorified with him. Look at how many times Paul speaks about sonship or children or adoption, or family in just these few verses. He does it over and over again. He said, all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So over and over again, Paul repeats this idea of being children of God. That's how we can be assured that we are no longer under judgment because we have been brought into the family of God. Now, there are a couple of things that are implied here. And you've heard me talk about this many times before, but it's so important because our culture today has been influenced very much by the liberal scholarship and liberal ideas that came out of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. Namely, this idea that every single human being is automatically a creature of God, or a child of God, rather. That we're just automatically, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, children of God. We hear this all the time. We talk about the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, which implies that we are all children. And you even find some hint of that in the New Testament. Now, you may recall that the Apostle Paul, when he went to Athens, was appealing to the Athenians. And he talks about the fact that God had created us all, that all human beings can trace their lineage back to one man, to Adam, and so forth. But of course, on that particular occasion, Paul wasn't really talking about the family of God so much as he was talking about the human race in general. But this idea that is very popular today, in some parts of the church, I might add, that we are all automatically, by virtue of the fact that we are the descendants of Adam, automatically children of God simply can't be borne out by the biblical witness. It's just not there. And, and it's obvious from what Paul is saying here. Paul talks about adoption as sons. Well, if you're adopted into a family, that meant that at one point you were not a part of that family. Now you have been made a part of that family. This is the whole message of the gospel as far as Paul, as far as Paul is concerned. That is why we have hope. That is why we have confidence, because we were not part of the family. We have now been made a part of the family. So the first thing we have to acknowledge here, and we need to keep repeating this because the culture pushes against this, is that not every single person is a child of God. Every single person is a creature of God, an exalted creature of God, because we have been made in the image of God. We reflect His glory. This is why human beings are of greater value than animals. Now, that's not to say that animals aren't important. I'm an animal lover. Some animals. Dogs more than cats, for example. But nevertheless, we are all creatures of God, but we only become children of God, Paul says, by adoption. And it's not just here. You, you see this in the first chapter of John as well. Those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, which implies that they weren't always children of God. So that's the first thing that Paul is stating. He doesn't state it directly, but indirectly he's making the point that we have to be adopted into the family of God in order to become one of his children. Jesus made this point in even stronger language in John's Gospel. On one occasion he found himself... Um, at loggerheads with the Jewish religious leaders. That was not uncommon, unfortunately. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of all sorts of things, and um, Jesus is pushing back on them. And at one point, the Jewish religious leaders make a snide remark about Jesus' birth. Uh, we do know that there were rumors flying about, about Jesus' birth. We all know that there were unusual circumstances surrounding the Lord's birth. 
It was a virginal conception, for example. Um, Mary conceived that child by the power of the Holy Ghost without having had relationships with Joseph. The Gospels make that point very clear. Well, apparently in the first century, there were rumors floating around. Something's funny about his birth. I don't know what it is. And some of the rumors were quite derisive, to be perfectly honest with you. And on this particular occasion, the Jewish religious leaders say, well, we have Abraham as our father, as if to imply, we know who our father is. You don't know who your father is, but we know who our father is. That's, that's what's going on there in that passage. And Jesus said, actually, if you would listen to my words, you would be listening to my father. And my father is God. And then basically what he says to the Jewish religious leaders is, and you, Father, you follow your father, the devil. So, you know, you can see that the, the tension is rising at that point. Hardly any of us would dare to say that to another person, but Jesus did. So he's implying that these Jewish religious leaders, these scribes and the Pharisees, actually, far from being children of Abraham, were in fact children of the devil. So if you think Paul's language is somewhat offensive, just imagine Jesus' language. Jesus, who we always imagine to be meek and mild. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Jesus, loving and gentle. Jesus knew how to call a spade a spade, and indeed he did so. So that's the first thing to acknowledge. Not everyone is a member of God's family. We become members of God's family by grace, by adoption. And there are a number of things that follow as a result of this adoption. First of all, it is a radical change that takes place in an individual when they are adopted into a family. There is a change of status. Now, you need to understand a couple of things about adoption in the first century world in which Paul was operating. First of all, this was a Greco-Roman idea for the most part, this idea of being adopted. Jews really didn't practice adoption. They had other ways of dealing with this, things like leverite marriage, for example. Um, if, if I were to die, it would be the responsibility of my brother, if he was unmarried, to marry my wife and take care of my children. So that was what was known as leverite marriage. So the Jews had ways of dealing with people who were left destitute or who had lost a husband and so forth. They had ways of dealing with widows and orphans. It simply wasn't by virtue of what we would call proper adoption. But the Greeks and the Romans did, and I think that's one of the reasons why Paul uses this language of adoption, because he's writing primarily to Gentiles. Now, the church in Rome had Jews there as well, but it was predominantly Gentile. After all, this was the imperial capital. This, this was the center, the headquarters of the Roman Empire. And so Paul is using language that they would have understood. Now here's the second thing to remember about adoption in the first century. Adoption in a Greco-Roman world was irrevocable. That when you got adopted into a family, you could not be unadopted. You could not be thrown out of the family, so to speak. You could not lose your privileged status. You could disinherit your natural children. This is what's so fascinating. In Roman culture, you could disinherit your natural children. But once you made the conscious decision to adopt a child, you could not disinherit them. Now, you didn't have to adopt the child. 
But if you did, it was irrevocable. So Paul is using this language, and he is saying that we only become children of God by adoption. But once we are adopted into the family of God, there is this radical change of status. We were outside, we are now inside the fold. And our status is irrevocable. So that's the first thing. And that's a reason for encouragement, folks. That's how you can know that you're never going to lose your salvation. Because this is an act of God. You've been adopted into his family, and you are now his child. Second thing about this entrance into the family of God is that not only is it by adoption and it brings about a radical change in our status, it is also supernatural. This is another reason why we can be absolutely confident we cannot lose our salvation, that nothing, as Paul says here in this chapter, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God because, he says, this act of adopting us into his family is God's initiative. It is God who does it. We don't choose to be adopted into the family of God. We don't say, well, that's a nice family. I think I'd rather be a part of that family than the one that I've got. Now, you may sometimes feel that way. But when you're adopted, it is the initiative of the adopting parent. And that's the way it is with God. It is being adopted into his family. And this is a new birth. Keep your finger there in Romans and flip back to John chapter 3 to that familiar story, you all know it, of Jesus and Nicodemus. And let's just listen to how Jesus puts it to Nicodemus. You all know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He is curious. He's a seeker. I pointed out in the past that Nicodemus was a man who had everything going for him. If you were in the Bible study on Sundays on John, we looked at this extensively. Uh, Nicodemus was a powerful man. He was an influential man. He was an educated man. He was a wealthy man, and yet he was a dissatisfied man. There was something missing in his life. He didn't quite know what it was but he didn't have the serenity that he longed for, and yet he saw that that very serenity existed in this young Jewish rabbi. And so we're told that he came under the cover of darkness and knocked on Jesus' door, hoping nobody else would see him. And I love the way the story begins, because Nicodemus, being a ruler of the Jews, a powerful man, begins by stating all the things that he knows. He knows that Jesus is a man who has come from God, because no one could do the things that Jesus was doing unless God were with him. But I love the way Jesus responds to it. Um, Jesus is, again, a person who sometimes just doesn't pull punches. We would have expected him to say, oh, Nicodemus, oh, come on in. Let's, let's have a cup of tea and talk about it. I, I'm so honored that you would come here to, 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 to learn from me. He doesn't say that at all. The first thing he says was, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Translate, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. And I know what you're looking for. I know why you've come under the cover of darkness. You don't want the other Pharisees to understand why you're here. 
but I know that you're a searching individual. And Jesus doesn't even say, that's a good thing. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, I know what you're looking for. I know what you need. And I'm telling you the truth, unless you're born again, you'll never see it. Now, there's the language, born, birth, family. And how does that new birth come? Well, look at Nicodemus' response in John chapter 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes. You have to be born from above. You have to be born by the Spirit. But he says, it's up to the Spirit. <laughs> For the wind blows, and something gets lost in the translation here. It says, the wind blows. The word that is translated wind is the same word for Spirit. Panumos. That's so the same word. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So we know that we have assurance, if you go back to Romans chapter 8, first of all, because we've been made children of God, and that is by adoption, and that adoption is irrevocable. There is something that carpenters sometimes do in order to join two pieces of wood together in such a way that they can't be pried apart. It's called clinching the nail. And what they'll do is they'll hammer the nail in halfway and then they'll hammer it sideways so that it bends over. And that way, if the pieces of wood move, the nail can't work its way out. It's clinched in place. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's talking about assurance. He wants us to be confident he wants us to live lives of confidence and hopefulness, and he doesn't want us to be fretful or always worried that we are going to lose God's love or our status or our salvation. This, incidentally, was the problem for Martin Luther, you know, the great reformer. Everybody remembers Martin Luther. Everybody remembers how courageous Luther was, how he nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, how he stood before the Diet of Worms and the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor Empire and the Pope and said, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. To deny one's conscience is neither right nor safe. And everybody says, oh, Luther's a great hero. Now, this past um, Monday, um, we took our daughter for a tour of Samford University and uh, down in Birmingham, Alabama. And they have a beautiful, magnificent chapel. If you're ever down there, go to Samford University. It's a beautiful campus. And see the chapel there. It's hard to believe that it's American. It's even harder to believe that it's Baptist. Um, because it is so elaborate and so magnificent, it really ought to be Anglican. But at any rate, it's not. But one of the things is you see all these frescoes, and they start with these frescoes of the great heroes of the faith, and they're all biblical individuals. You know, Peter's there, and Paul's there, and the apostles are there, and then all of a sudden, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, right next to the Apostle Paul. That's how we remember Luther, as this giant of the faith. But Luther, until he came to understand what Paul was saying here in Romans, was incapable of being used by God. 
And the reason for that was he was so fretful about his own salvation. Luther had a very tender conscience. And that's a good thing, actually. He had no confidence in himself whatsoever. Now, he was a bright man. He was a professor. He had a doctoral degree in theology. But in terms of his own self-worth, Luther realized that he was a terrible sinner. And he lived with such guilt and with such shame that he could never really be used by God. It wasn't until he came to the assurance that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8. It was only when he understood that the just, that is those who are in a right relationship with God, are in a right relationship with God, not by virtue of anything that they do, but by virtue of what God has done on their behalf, received by faith. The just shall live by faith. Only then did Luther find a confidence, a boldness, to go out and stand against the corruption of the medieval church. Well, that's what God wants us to have. He wants us to have a boldness. God wants us to have a, a confidence in living the Christian life. Because if, you're, if you don't have that confidence, you'll never be good for anything. A child who is always afraid of losing their parents' approval or love is a child that is always fearful, always timid, always anxious. As opposed to the child who knows that no matter what they do, Mom and dad may get angry at them, but no matter what they do, that love is unconditional. That is a child that will grow up to do things. That's what God wants for you and for me. He doesn't want you going around fearful, anxious, timid, convinced that you could possibly lose your salvation if you just mess up. God wants you to understand that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. And that is because, number one, you've been adopted into his family, and number two, that adoption was God's act, not yours. He took the initiative. Here's the third reason for our confidence, and that is because having been adopted into God's family, the effects of that adoption are far-reaching. It's not just for a time. It's not just for a season. It is forever. And not only that, but having been brought into the family, God is now going to train us up into what it means to be a part of the family. The healthiest families are those families where everybody has a role to play. It's not mom and dad going around serving the kids. Nor is it children going around serving mom and dad. The healthiest families are those families in which everyone has a role to play. And in that role, they feel a sense of self-worth. Well, that is exactly what God wants for us. So that's what Paul is talking about when he said, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're no longer slaves. We have been brought into the family. We are children. Now that raises a question. How do I know that I'm in the family of God? It's a wonderful thing to be in the family of God. If you're in the family of God, you have all of these blessings, absolute confidence, because you know that your father's love for you is unconditional and it's irrevocable. But how do I know for certain that I'm in there? How do I know that I've passed from the family of slavery to the family of God? 
Well, Paul provides us in the verses that we have before us today with what you might describe as a paternity test by which we can determine if, in fact, God really is our Father. How many of you have ever wondered? I mean, you're, you're hopeful, but you've had those moments of doubt that you're actually in the family of God. Now, some of you are gritting your teeth but not raising your hands. I've had those feelings. Have you ever had those feelings? Yes, of course you have. Most of us have. If you have a tender conscience, you probably had it at one point or another. Well, that's what Paul wants to provide for us. Again, an added assurance. He wants us to know for certain. And if we discover that we're not children of God, he wants us to be sure that we can become children of God. So what is this paternity test that Paul provides? Well, it's right here in these verses. Let's read them again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the first thing. How do you know that you're a child of God? That your status is irrevocable? That God's acceptance of you is unconditional? Well, the first way you know that, he says, is if you are led by the Spirit of God. Look again at how Paul puts it. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Of God. So that's the first test. If you want to know you're a child of God, ask yourself, do I find myself being led by the Spirit of God? Now, you may be wondering, well, what in the world does that mean, to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, it means a number of things. First of all, it means a renewal of your mind. It means that you're beginning to look at life and you're beginning to look at the world in an altogether new way. You see a different set of priorities than you once saw. You're beginning to think, you're beginning to act with the mind of Christ. It'll be some time before we get there, but keep your finger there in Romans chapter 8 and skip it ahead to Romans chapter 12 for just a minute. Paul says this, it's a familiar passage, living sacrifice. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Incidentally, this echoes the language of the liturgy that we use on Sunday. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a what? A living sacrifice. That's what we are called to do as Christians. Now, as someone once said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. Um, and that is true, but what Paul is encouraging us to do is to give up our lives as an offering to God in the same way that Jesus gave up his life as an offering for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he goes on to say what that looks like. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. If you're going to be a living sacrifice, if you're going to live the Christian life, which is not a life of ease, it's not a life of comfort, it is a life of hopefulness, it is a life of reward, and hopefully we're going to get to that today, but it, in this life can be a life of difficulty, a suffering, a life of self-denial. We are to take up our cross, Jesus said, daily and follow him. 
So we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And the way that we do that is that we are not conformed to the pattern of the world, but we are transformed. So it's not confirmation, it's transformation. In other words, if you look at a person who claims to be a Christian, but they live like the rest of the world, you cannot see a difference in the way that they are living from the way that the the fallen world is living. Well, then they should be questioning in their minds if in fact they really are children of God. Well, how does that come about? How does this transformation come about? It's interesting the way Paul puts it here. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. I want you to understand something about salvation. We often say, well, salvation is a matter of the heart, and that is true. But I want you to understand that transformation, salvation begins in the mind. It has to move to the heart. But it begins here with the realization of what we once were and of what we need to become. Think about Jesus' parable, for example, of the prodigal son. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with that parable of the prodigal son. It's the story of a young man who, quite frankly, dislikes his father. He doesn't like his father. One of the reasons he doesn't like his father is because his father's in charge. And what he wants is his inheritance so that he can do what? His own thing. That's what he wants. So he goes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance. Now, you understand that in a first century Jewish context, a Palestinian context in the first century, to say to your father, I want my inheritance, is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Because a father is under no obligation to give his son anything. It's the father's. And the son only gets the inheritance upon his father's what? Demise. Death. So this young man is basically going to the father and saying, I want to do my own thing. I'm tired of being under your house, under your thumb. Give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. Now, at that point, the father could have just kicked him right out. But he doesn't. Instead, the father gives him his inheritance. And he goes off into a far country or a distant land, and he squanders that inheritance on loose living. There's no need for me to describe for you what that is. I think you can figure it all out on your own. He does his own thing, and it does not end well. Incidentally, it never ends well when we do our own thing. So... He does his own thing, and the consequence of doing his own thing is that he comes to a very low point. He's sitting there feeding pigs. Now, in that first century audience, as Jesus is telling this story, you can just imagine what Jews are thinking right now. Oh, gosh, pigs. Because pigs were, of course, unclean animals. They were not kosher. And here's a man who has fallen to such a low estate that he's not only feeding pigs, we're told he's longing for the pods that the pigs were feeding on. He's so far down, when he looks up, he still sees bottom. He's in a bad way. And then what happens? The text says he came to his senses. What does that mean? 
it remains he remembered his father. He said, ah, oh, my father. You know what? Maybe it wasn't so bad after all. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather go home. I'd rather go home and be a servant in my father's house than be in this miserable place where I'm longing for the scraps that the pigs are feeding on. And we're told that the young man did what? He got up and he went home. Well, tell me that's not a picture of the human condition. That's exactly what Paul has been talking about here in Romans. That's exactly what you and I have done. We basically said, all right, God, you're the, the ruler of the universe. You're in charge. You make the rules. And quite frankly, I don't like them. I don't want to live the way that you have told me to live. I want to live my own way. I want to do my own thing. As the old Burger King commercial said, I want to have it my way. I wish you were dead. Now, you think to yourself, I would never say that about God. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, how many of us always keep God's commandments? That is an indicator to us that no matter what we may say with our lips, our lives show something else. You could tell your wife every Valentine's Day or every anniversary, I love you. But if you beat her up on a continuous basis, the actions speak louder than the words, folks. So that's what you and I have done. We, we, we have basically said, God, I wish you were dead. I want to be God. I want to be in charge of my own life. I want to take my inheritance, do my own thing, and we do. And that's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. And doing your own thing never ends well, as Romans chapter 1 testifies. But you know that you're on the road to salvation when all of a sudden you've reached that low point and you suddenly remember your father. Oh, my father. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't so bad after all. And you come to your senses and you decide to go home. What does going home mean? That's called repentance. Do you know what the word repent means? It means to turn around. It means to do a 180. It means that you're going one way and you turn around and you go back the other way. And how you know that you are a member of God's family is that you have come to your senses. You, you begin to realize that doing things my own way is not the right way. It is not the way to life or to joy or to fulfillment it is the way to destruction. And you come to your senses and you go home. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Now, I'm a firm believer that that is not when that young man was saved. I think the young man in Jesus' parable was saved when he got home, knowing that what he should have gotten from his father was to be rejected. I mean, you have to use your imagination. And Jesus wants us to use our imaginations. But just imagine if you're that young man and you're going home after you've just said to your father, I wish you were dead. And you've taken your inheritance and you've blown it and you've got to go home and eat crow. And you're on your way home and you're thinking to yourself, 
Better to go home and be a slave in my father's house. But the closer you get to the house, the more you're thinking to yourself, oh gosh, is he going to take me back? Because obviously he doesn't have to. He, he could very easily slam the door in your face and say, you've chosen this life, you live in it. You've made your bed, you lie in it. But instead, what does he find the father doing? He finds the father meeting him on the road, which tells us, incidentally, that every day the father was there longing for the son to come back. Looking down that long, dusty road, just hoping to catch a glimpse of that familiar figure. And when he does, he goes out and he meets his son on the road. And he takes a mantle and put it, puts it over his shoulders. And he calls for a ring and puts it on his finger as a sign of inclusion within the family. And he kills the fatted calf and he celebrates that the son who was lost has been found. And let me tell you something. That is when the young man had a change of heart. When he received from his father not what he deserved, but what he didn't deserve. He had a change of mind in the pigsty. He had a change of heart when he received from his father what he didn't deserve. That's called grace. But it starts, you see, with that decision to go home. And the promise is that if you will come home, if you will return to God, you will not find a father who will slam the door in your face. Doesn't matter how far afield you have wandered. It doesn't matter how much of your resources, spiritual and otherwise, that you have squandered doing your own thing. The promise is that when you come to your senses and you say, I don't want to live this way anymore, conform to the pattern of this world, when you are transformed in your mind, when you come home, what you find is a loving father who will meet you on the way and adopt you into his family, bring you back home into the fold. So he renews our minds. And this is why Paul says, whatever's noble, whatever's lovely, whatever's beautiful, whatever is pure, think on these things. What do you think on? What is your mind occupied with on a daily basis? Just think about the things that the world is occupied with. Everything that is ignoble. Everything that is impure. Everything that is ugly. That's what the world celebrates. That's what the world is interested in. Do you find yourself, let me ask you this question, walking out of step with the world? There's a wonderful story about Robert E. Lee. I know Robert E. Lee's fallen on hard times in recent years, but I like Robert E. Lee. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I know this is going out over the airwaves, but I've never been accused of being politically correct, so why start now? But I don't know if many of you know that when Robert E. Lee, um, in the post-war years, after the Civil War, he became the president of a small college in Rockbridge County, Virginia. Um, the college was known as Washington College. The place was struggling, struggling. It's called Washington College because it had originally been started as an institution 
and uh, fell on hard times, and the first president, George Washington, gave some money to keep the school going. Well, after 1865, when Virginia was devastated, the South was in the midst of reconstruction, Washington College was struggling again, and they needed somebody to lead it, and so they called Robert E. Lee, who quite frankly didn't have a job, and said, would you come and be the president of Washington College? And Lee agreed to do so, and he transformed it. And most of you know it today as Washington and Lee University. It's one of the finest institutions in the South. And Lee really saved that institution. But in those post-war years, and if you've been to WNL, if you've been to Lexington, Virginia, you know that Washington and Lee University adjoins the campus of the Virginia Military Institute. You literally walk from one campus into the next. There's no barrier or anything. You just walk from one campus into the next, out of WNL onto the parade ground at VMI. And in the post-war years, when both of those schools were struggling to get students, because so much of the South had been devastated, so many young men had died, so they didn't have a student body, either of them, large enough to have their own commencement ceremonies. So they would have com uh, a combined commencement ceremony. Every year, what would happen is the students and faculty of VMI and Washington and Lee would march behind a military band up to VMI where they would have a joint commencement ceremony on the parade ground. And because most of the students at that point had been former soldiers having served in the army, they all marched in perfect step. Every single one of them except for one. Robert E. Lee, never marched in unison with everyone else. Now, nobody dared to ask why, because they were a little intimidated by him. But everybody wondered. I mean, Lee had gone to West Point. He'd graduated near the top of his class, second in his class. He had an extraordinary pre-war army career, and then he was now one of the most famous generals in all of history, certainly the most famous general alive. And yet, everybody else is walking in perfect step, and this man, West Point graduate, not walking in perfect step. Finally, one of the faculty members went up to him, and they said, General Lee, why is it that you do not walk with everyone else? And Lee's response was this. He said, my life as a soldier is over. I'm a soldier no more. I'm a teacher. I walk out of step with that world. Well, that's a brilliant picture of how you and I are supposed to live. Not marching in lockstep with the world, with the culture, with the standards, with the beliefs of the world, but as Christians, we are to walk out of step with that world. We are not to be conformed to the pattern of the culture. We are to be transformed, and it begins with the renewing of our minds. So, one aspect of this paternity test is to ask yourself, am I thinking differently? Do I see the world through a different set of lenses than the culture? Now, we all know that there are those people out there who are outliers, who see things differently than everybody else, and I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about seeing things different in a different way than the pattern of the world. 
That's the first step in this paternity test. He renews our mind. Second thing he does is he stirs our heart. That is to say, we grow in our affection for God. You know, Martin Luther feared God. And rightly so. I mean, God is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But Luther would have been the first one to tell you he didn't love God. He obeyed God, but only because he was afraid of what was going to happen to him if he didn't. It may be that some of you grew up in a family where you respected your parents and you obeyed your parents, but you didn't necessarily love your parents. The only reason you obeyed them and respected them is because you knew what would happen to you if you didn't. That's not the same thing as loving a parent, isn't it? Any parent who is worth their salt wants their children to obey them, yes. But out of love, not out of fear. Do you love God? I mean, love Him? Not merely fear Him? But do you love Him for what He's done for you? For the fact that He is that father of the prodigal who comes and meets you on the road? clothes you in his righteousness, puts his stamp of approval upon you? Do you love God in that way? That's how John Wesley described his conversion, as a strange warming of the heart. Wesley was just like Luther. He feared God. It wasn't until, incidentally, he was hearing somebody read from St. Paul's, or excuse me, from Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, isn't that interesting? That he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he said, I knew that I loved God and that God loved me. Think about that when you come for communion and you kneel there at the altar rail, for those of you who come to the high altar. Um, in the posture of a beggar. Did you ever notice that that's why we come like we do? When we come to communion on Sunday, we come in the posture of beggars, on our bended knees, with our palms uplifted, begging for scraps. That's why we do it. There's symbolism in everything that we do. But that's why we come as beggars to the Lord's table. And what we hear is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Now you think about that. Does that stir your heart? Does that fill you with a sense of gratitude and affection for the Lord? That's a sign that you are part of the family of God. So he renews our minds. He stirs our hearts. He directs our wills. He puts within us that desire to serve Him. Now that doesn't mean that we won't sometimes fall. It doesn't mean that we won't sometimes mess up, that we won't sometimes sin. Luther was right, we're simul ustus et peccator. But, but, when we do, are we sorry that we've done it? I pointed this out many times before. When we say the confession of sin on Sunday in church, 
we do two things. We acknowledge and bewail. Well, there are lots of people out there that will acknowledge, but they're not really sorry. You, you know, the child that, I remember one occasion in my own life, my mother's sitting out here, she may not know about it, so I won't give you the full details at any rate. But I remember on one occasion going and doing something, going someplace I wasn't supposed to go. And my father finding out about it. And he sat me down in a chair in our living room, and I mean he reamed me out. I mean he let me have it with both barrels. And then he parted with these words. Now you go into your room and you think about it. And you ask yourself if it was worth it. Because at that point he had taken away everything. I mean, I was, I was Amish, as the kids say. I, I was grounded, restricted, whatever. I mean, he took everything away. Now you go into your room, you sit in there and you think about it, and you tell me if it was worth it. And I remember going in and shutting the door, and he couldn't see me saying, worth it. <laughs> now, I may have acknowledged that I'd done something wrong, but I sure as heck wasn't bewailing it. <laughs> Truth be known, if I could get away with it, I would have done it again. Well, is that the way it is with God? Or does he direct your will in such a way that you, you long to serve him? You long to do the right thing. You may fall short of the mark sometimes. That's incidentally the way sin is sometimes described in the New Testament is missing the mark. You may fall short of the mark. But when you do, are you sorry? I think one of the most haunting scenes in the entire New Testament is that scene where Peter having said to Jesus, I'll follow you to prison, even to death. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's shaking his head, no, I won't do that. But of course, you know that he did. And even once to a little girl. And there's this scene in the gospel where Peter apparently was in the courtyard of Caiaphas' palace. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been to that site. You've seen the first century steps, the very steps that Jesus would have been taken up, bound as an animal, up those steps for trial before the high priest in the middle of the night, which was a violation of Jewish law, incidentally. And those of you who are going in the spring, we're going to go there. You'll actually see these steps that the Lord of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth, having taken on flesh, walked up those very steps. And we're told that in that courtyard... Somebody said to Peter, yes, you were with him. I, I can tell by your accent. You're a Galilean. You were there. And Peter calls down a curse upon his head. I swear to God, I do not know the man. And the text says that Jesus turned and looked at him. Just looked at him. And Peter went out and whipped bitterly. His heart was broken. That was a sign, incidentally, that he was not lost. 
Incidentally, that's the difference between what Peter did and what Judas did. Judas was sorry for what he did and in despair went and hanged himself. Peter was sorry for what he did and wept bitterly but came back and found that that Jesus was willing to accept him and to welcome him back into the apostolic fold. Well, is that true for you? When you sin, when you fall short of the mark, is your heart grieved? Do you weep bitterly that you have disappointed the Lord? When he turns and he looks at you, is your heart broken as a consequence? So, this is a chapter about assurance. God wants us to be assured that we are children of God, that we've been adopted into the family, and one way we know is by the renewal of our mind, by the stirring of our hearts, by the directing of our wills. I want you to know something today, that if you are not thinking the way the world is thinking, then God is working on you right now. If you're starting to come to your senses and realize that, look, I've made a mess of things. I'm not at peace. I'm not content. If you're ready to go home to your father, I want you to understand that father's going to meet you on the road. He's not going to slam the door in your face. He's been longing for you, looking for you, watching for you, however far afield you've gone. And there's nothing more that he wants but bring you back into the family to adopt you as one of his own and to make you a son or a daughter forever. If you haven't, come to your senses today. Think about your father and go home.